Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Sam Mellinger. Sam is a columnist for the Kansas City Star. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Mellinger. Sam, thanks for joining the podcast today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Well, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. <laughs> um, I mean, a combination of things. Uh, just at the most practical level, uh, it was the job that was available <laughs> um, at the newspaper. But, you know, I mean, beyond that, um, I, I really I've always loved baseball. I love baseball since I was a kid. I think a lot of us um, probably when we grow up, our favorite sports are whatever favorite sports um, like our dad's favorite sports. Right. And, uh, and, and my dad loved baseball and, uh, college basketball. I don't know why I said that in the past tense. He still does. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, baseball was just a natural, um, you know, attraction for me. And, um, and then once I got into it, um, I liked it even more. Um, I mean, this sounds weird maybe, um, but I mean, I love baseball, but I love covering baseball. I think even more than I like just watching baseball. And um, I think the reasons for that are, are on a couple of different levels. I mean, um, you know, I love the number side of it. Um, I really do. I get into that. I think that, that baseball is the most quantifiable um, sport that we have. And, and I also love the culture of it. It's, it's very much, you know, it, especially like here in Kansas city, we have, you know, basically two uh, major pro teams, right? The, the chiefs and the Royals NFL and the MLB. And um, juxtaposed to the NFL, which is very much a, you know, this is a war secret and you're not smart enough to understand, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the fullback dive. You know, baseball is very much a culture of, you know, standing around the batting cage telling stories that, that end up with people laughing. And um, I've always loved absolutely like both sides of that. Are you originally from Kansas City? Not too far. Um, I, I grew up in a small town. Um, called Emporia, um, which is about two hours south of Kansas City. And then uh, my family moved to Lawrence, which is um, about 40 minutes west of Kansas City uh, when I was in junior high. And so I went to high school and college there and um, have lived in Kansas City since uh, 2000, so quite a while. So when you were growing up, and especially when you first started covering the Royals, they were really known for their futility. They were one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball, really one of the worst teams in professional sports. And over the last three or four years, there's been a significant change, uh, obviously, in their results. They won a World Series. They made the World Series in an additional year. But I'm curious how covering a team has changed for you from when they were bad, real bad, to now when they just won a World Series two years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, um, I'm kind of – I'm maybe – as young as is possible to have remembered 1985, um, you know, that, that world series is really like my first sports memory. I was, I was seven that year. And, uh, I mean, that's really kind of the first thing that I remember. So I, like, I mean, I remember like Bo Jackson was the athlete of my youth, you know? Um, so I, I I'm old enough to remember when they were, you know, still at, at least at the tail end of that, I don't remember the seventies or the early eighties, but at least at the tail end of that really good phase, and then you're right, though. I mean, from uh, 90, basically the strike, um, that's a good, you know, uh, line of demarcation. Basically from the strike to um, <laughs> three years ago, uh, they were just rotten. And, and like the Royal, and not just rotten, but like just, you know, predictably rotten. And, and like, and at, at times like, you know, rotten in this like tragically comedic way as well. I mean, there, there's so many stories about, you know, them trying out a professional softball pitcher and the GM at the time, Allard Baird, walking away and just saying, it's a buck, it's a buck. 
and uh, Kerry Robinson, I think what it was of, you know, climbing the wall for uh, in Chicago for a ball that ended up bouncing in front of him and then over his head for a ground rule double. And, you know, Esteban Herman taking a fly ball off his face uh, because he didn't have sunglasses. So he had a black eye and the next day on the team flight, he had sunglasses to cover that black eye. I mean, there, there was, I mean, we could talk for an hour about all these different stories. And so when, um, when Dayton Moore came, when, when, when David Glass had finally had enough, and by the way, like David Glass was uh, legitimately one of the worst owners in professional sports for a long time. And, um, you know, for a lot of reasons, but including the fact that he had, you know, a loyal soldier and Allard Baird um, is the GM and completely let him hang for like three months where everybody in baseball, including Allard Baird, knew he was about to be fired. And, and David Glass didn't have the, the courtesy or whatever to just tell him he's about to be fired. And uh, so w- when they hired Dayton Moore in, um, they, they technically hired him in May of 2006, but his first day wasn't until June of 2006 because they wouldn't let him do the draft. But anyway, uh, his Dayton's first um, day on the job was my first week uh, covering baseball at the paper. And so like the, the pre Dayton stuff, like I, I have in my, uh, you know, in sort of my mind and my memory um, as a fan or as somebody who, who was living in Kansas city, but like the Dayton stuff is pretty much like simultaneous with me covering baseball. And um, I, I, so I guess what I'm saying is like I, all the David Glass stuff I had heard and knew about, um, but not in a professional capacity. And so when I started in 2006, uh, I, I kind of came with a fresh mind and, and everything that I saw and, and everything that I heard from uh, people both in and outside of the Royals, you know, and more importantly, probably outside of the Royals was that, um, Hey man, your guy is actually like doing the right things now. You know, and, and there, there, so there's a clear line between the David Glass who, you know, wouldn't get cell phones for his scouts and, uh, you know, the David Glass who, uh, you know, stopped paying draft picks after like the fifth round a couple of years. The David Glass who, like, you know, wouldn't have a Negro League's Appreciation Day because he didn't want to pay for the uniforms. Like, you know, the, there's that David Glass that all happened before 2006. And then after 2006, there's a guy who, like, you know, he's certainly not like George Steinbrenner or whatever, but, um, you, you know, has been kind of a model small money owner in, in a lot of ways for the last decade. And so that's what I saw. And, and, but like, but that was a hard story to tell. It was hard for people to buy from 2006 to like, you know, maybe 2012, which is a long time. I mean, that's seven years. Uh, you know, people didn't want to hear it because it was the same guy who was in charge of all these terrible teams, you know, the teams that lost 310 games in the span of three years. Uh, but they, they were doing, you know, some kind of grassroots, like overpaying for draft picks. Um, you know, uh, they, they built an international scouting department that, you know, essentially non-existent and built it into the, you know, one of the best, if not five, maybe 10 best in baseball. So, uh, I mean, th- there was a, a, a really obvious change for those of us who were close to it, but it, it was, it was a strange existence because you had to be very conscious of the fact that, people on the outside didn't care about any of that. All they saw was, uh, you know, the R time Royals in 2012 that, you know, were booed literally minutes into the home opener um, and, and things like that. So it's like the, the rise really like, you know, we, we, in, in, in hindsight, we can look back and see in 2013, they won, I think it was 86 games. And that was the first time that they'd had a winning record in a decade. 
Um, and we can kind of look at that as a big deal, but at the time it was sort of like, yeah, whatever. They still didn't win anything. You know, are, are we now happy with finishing in third place and seven games out or whatever it was? And, and then even in 2014, and again, in hindsight, we remember that, that, that team went all the way to game seven of the world series in July of 2014, they were below 500. And, and of everything I've ever written uh, in the newspaper, the thing I took the most blowback uh, and, and maybe by far from readers was in July of 2014 when they were below 500 and everybody was ticked off. Like I, I wrote this thing that said that, you know, you shouldn't fire Dayton and Ned. And, and people were ticked about that. I mean, they, they thought that was the end of it. And those guys should not only be fired, but humiliated. So it really came super quick. I mean, we're talking from August 2014 to, uh, you know, game five of the World Series in 2015. It was like a, you know, we, we can talk about it as this like decade where the Royals rose. But, um, you know, in function, if you were a fan, it, it was like 14 months that they rose. And they're in an interesting position because a lot of the core of their championship team are free agents at the end of the year. Given that, and they've addressed that somewhat, they traded Wade Davis for Jorge Soler. That was a deal I I thought made sense for them. I thought it made sense for both teams, to be honest. But given that their core are all free agents at the end of the year, or there's so many of them are, do you feel like they're doing enough this year in the offseason to try and go for one more run? No, I don't. Um, And and I wrote something that was... um, I've wrote a few times, like very critical of, of David Glass, because for for all of the good things that he did over the last decade, um, he's kind of going cheap at a time when it doesn't make sense to go cheap, and and he's kind of forcing this front office into this weird position where they're trying to serve two masters uh, because they they are uh, not willing to give up on the dream of 2017, which I think is entirely understandable for for all the disappointment of last year and going 81 and 81. They did have a ton of injuries, and and this is still a core that won the World Series the year before that, and, and was legitimately you know wire to wire the the best team in the American League, and so I, I totally get wanting to you know make one more ride uh, with these guys, but if if that's how you're going to do it, having the owner say the payroll needs to be cut, and I want to win more games, just you know doesn't make sense, and and they're they're forcing the front office into this like impossible situation where you're trying to. Uh, rebuild and win at the same time. And, um, you know, Dayton, to his credit, doesn't, does not bring this up, but he, he was involved in, you know, maybe baseball's best example of a team being able to pull that off when the Braves won, uh, you know, 14 straight division championships. But that was a very different time in baseball. Uh, the, the Braves were operating in a very different, you know, financial advantage th- than what the Royals have. And, you know, the, the trade, I'm with you. I, I, I totally agree with you that the, the, the way Davis trade uh, makes a lot of sense for the Royals. It fills a hole. Um, you know, I believe that Wade Davis is their second best relief pitcher now behind Kelvin Herrera. Um, it also makes a lot of sense for the Cubs. They didn't need Solaire um, and they needed a closer. So, I, you know, I get it for both sides. But after this, um, I, I don't know that there's another deal out there like that because whoever you trade away is somebody that you really need. Um, whether that's uh, Lorenzo Cain or Mike Moustakis or, uh, you know, some people have even talked about Eric Hosmer or whatever. I mean, the, the, these are guys that, that if you're going to win in 2017, you really need. So, uh, no, I mean, I, I don't agree with what they're doing this offseason at all, um, you know, and, and I think it's really disappointing that, uh, you know, one 81 and 81 year when you had, uh, you know, four all-stars, on the DL a total of five times and, you know, and some of them for a long time, Mike Moustakis missed the last, what, four and a half months of the season. 
uh, you know, one disappointing year like that, uh, you know, means that you have to cut back payroll. I just, uh, you know, I think, I think David Glass is making it, it was already going to be difficult, but he's making it, you know, um, closer to impossible than, than it should be. Yeah, and from the outside looking in, it appears like, you know, they, they had the misguided contract with Ian Kennedy. That seemed very old school Royals. You finally spend, you spend it on the wrong guy. It has, it has uh, Gil Mesh written all over it. And it just seems like they're, they're going to, uh, be perhaps vultures like the Orioles do in, in February and see who's left on the market. They're not going to go after any of the big bats that could help them this year. A lot of the teams in the American League have gotten better since the Royals won, even though a couple of teams in their division seem to be tanking or rebuilding. The Royals are putting themselves in a position, it seems like from the outside at least, they may be lining up for another 10 years of futility after this year. Yeah, I mean, I, I disagree with some of that. The, Ian Kennedy had a pretty good year last year. He gave up too many home runs, but um, you know, he still had pretty good numbers. But the, the biggest problem I had with that contract was that they gave him an opt-out, which um, an opt-out, I believe, after next year. And whenever you give those opt-outs, um, you're basically guaranteeing yourself that you're signing a bad contract because if you're getting value, the guy's going to opt out and go somewhere else. And, and if it ends up being a bad contract for you, you're stuck with it because the guy's going to take some money. Um, but they, they have a puncher's chance and, and you made a smart point with, um, what else is happening in the division. Um, so they, they, they have a puncher's chance to make the playoffs, but, they they just have to have everything go right. You know what I mean? And, and Lorenzo Cain, for instance, is, um, I think going to turn 31, I think. Um, and, and, you know, he has a long history of leg issues, um, and, and not being able to, um, uh, to stay healthy and they need him to stay healthy. Um, you know, Mike Moustakis has to come back and be hundred percent. I'm not that worried about that. Uh, he's young enough and, and has been a good player for a couple of years. Alex Gordon, needs a huge bounce back. He, he was, you know, the, uh, in Kansas city, kind of seemed like um, Joaquin Soria became like the mascot for, for people to punch and, and to blame everything on. And, uh, and, and he was not nearly as good as he needed to be. He was, and he was terrible for the last couple months of the season, but Alex Gordon was their biggest underperformer. And some of that was injury, but uh, you know, I think a lot of it was, you know, maybe grinding too hard, trying to live up to that contract. Um, everybody here loves Salvador Perez, which, you know, kind of clouds the fact that they need a lot more from Salvador Perez offensively. Um, Eric Hosmer had 25 homers, and 100 RBIs, which looks great on the baseball reference page. But like, uh, you know, it, like if you look a little bit deeper, he did not have that good of a year, uh, you know, slugging and, and getting on base and those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, they, they, they already have a lot of things that they need to go right. And, 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 and also I'm not buying really the, the idea that in 2018, they're going to be able to compete. I just, uh, you know, I, and again, I think Jorge Soler, that trade makes him a lot better in 2018, obviously, because Wade Davis was never going to be here in 2018. But, um, you know, they're going to have a lot of other holes uh, to fill. And I just, you know, to me, there's value in losing. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I think Houston proved that. I think the Nationals proved that. Uh, I think other teams are, are kind of following suit. And, and the Royals are, are, are you, know, uh, you know, just making it a lot harder on themselves to, you know, when, they, when they're done having a chance to win – they're, they're, they're not giving themselves the best opportunity to improve after that. And, uh, you know, I do think it's going to set up for a very frustrating and long, you know, 2018 through whatever, 2020, 2021, or, you know, however you want to draw the line. 
Yeah, and the worst place to be in professional sports is the middle, but I want to switch off the Royals for a little bit and ask you about the Hall of Fame. You're a first-time Baseball Hall of Fame voter this year. Tell me about the process that went into assembling your ballot and what was the first decision you had to make when you started looking at the players on it. Yeah, it was cool. Like, I'm enough of a a, a nerd and a romantic and and all that that, uh, you know, I was, like, super pumped when I got the email to, you know, register for it and, um, you know, when, when the envelope came and, and I looked at the ballot, you know, I legitimately, you know, it was just, it was a really cool moment. It, it's something that, that I've been looking forward to for a long time. And, um, but I, I also know this, like in the past, um, like anybody, like anybody who likes baseball, um, you look at, you know, who's eligible for the hall of fame. He's like, ah, wouldn't vote for that guy at all. That guy sucks, you know, or, or, you know, this guy, how, how are these people not voting for him? Um, but when you actually get that ballot, like it is a lot harder. Um, the, the, the real vote is a lot harder than, than the fake votes that, um, that I was always making. Um, so the, the first thing I did was, um, I, I, you know, looked at the names and just decided like who I thought was a no brainer. And, and to me, and look like we all have different, we all come to this from, from different, um, from different perspectives, but, um, to me, actually, I'm sorry, uh, let me back up. The, the first thing I did was I, I, I just talked to a lot of people. Um, I mean, obviously I looked and saw who was eligible, but I just talked to a lot of people. I talked to, you know, former players. I talked to, uh, you know, scout friends. I talked to, uh, you know, some people in front of offices and stuff like that. I'm just, you know, trying to get the feel of, of and, and, and other voters as well that have been doing this for a long time, just to get the feel of like, well, what do you guys think is a hall of famer? And, you know, what do you guys think about, you know, PEDs? And, um, you know, do you like little minutia stuff? Do you value, um, a high peak or, you know, a long prime? And, and I've always been kind of a high peak guy, but, um, uh, anyway, just, just getting a lot of different perspectives and that helped me a little bit. Um, and, and then I looked at the ballot again and, and checked off, um, some no brainers and, um, to me, and again, we all come from different viewpoints and I, I understand the other side on the PEDs, but to me, that was, uh, you know, and I don't have the ballot right in front of me, but to me, the no brainers were Bagwell, Reigns, Clemens, Bonds, and uh, Pudge, and Pudge Rodriguez. And I might be forgetting somebody who I thought was a no-brainer. Um, but then I expected to also vote for um, Trevor Hoffman, um, and um, I didn't think I was going to vote for, uh, you know, Mike Mussina, for instance. Um, I didn't think I was going to vote for Larry Walker. I thought I was going to vote for Black Guerrero. Um, you know, you just have these preconceived, um, you know, kind of what you think, but then I think it's really important to go through the research and, and to really look at these numbers and look at career accomplishments. And I ended up changing my name, uh, or changing my mind. Manny Ramirez to me was another no brainer. And I know a lot of people don't never think that Manny Ramirez should ever be in the hall of fame, but, um, I, I ended up changing my name or changing my mind. I'm sorry on, um, Trevor Hoffman, and uh, Vlad in the negative. And, and the reason I did that, the more I looked at the ballot, I kept looking at, you know, impact of game. And I, know, I, I, I completely understand that I'm penalizing Trevor Hoffman for his role. Um, and, and that may or may not be fair, but it is reality. And, and he did, you know, have a limited ability to impact games. And, and when I thought about that compared to, um, you know, for instance, a starting pitcher like Mike Messina, who pitches so many more innings. I mean, Trevor Hoffman, I think, threw fewer than a thousand innings in his career. Um, I don't know if you have baseball reference up. You can double check me on that. But I think that's true, which means that Mike Messina threw more innings 
you know, just in any five years of his career. And, um, you know, with Musina, I've always been, like I said a little bit before, um, I've always valued, you know, a high peak more than um, sustained, you know, for lack of a better term, goodness. But the more I looked at Musina, um, I think he finished top six in, in Cy Young voting um, something like nine times. Um, he, he has a, a strikeout to walk ratio uh, that is higher than everybody currently in the Hall of Fame other than Pedro Martinez and Cy Young, I believe. Uh, I mean, there's some really astounding, you know, when, the more I looked at those numbers from Musina, the more I started to change my mind that, you know what, he was really, really good. Like, you know, he never had a Pedro year. Um, he never had a Randy Johnson year. Uh, he never, you know, did what Greg Maddox did. But I think there's a lot of pitchers in the Hall of Fame um, who haven't done that. And there's not a lot of pitchers in the Hall of Fame that have been able uh, to do what Musina has. And uh, and I also think that um, if you're if there is any position in baseball where you're going to value durability and longevity and consistency, it should absolutely be starting pitching because you know how often can a guy pull off what Musina did? And he, and he was great as a 23 year old in Baltimore, and he was great his last year as a 39 year old in New York. And um, to me, the more I thought about it, the more that that I thought that that had value. And, um, you know, the other decision then was between um, basically uh, between Vlad and, and Larry Walker. And, uh, you know, I always thought of Larry Walker as sort of a creation of course field in a lot of ways. And then and, and I started doing some research and I, I realized that in his MVP year, which um, I think was 97, either 97 or 99, he had a higher uh, OPS on the road than he did at home. Um, he played fewer than a third of his games at Coors Field, and he hit everywhere. And there's a lot of people that played at Coors Field, and we're not talking about any of them for the Hall of Fame. And Larry Walker was a great hitter his last year in Montreal, and he was a, la- he was a great hitter uh, his last year in St. Louis when he was 38 years old or whatever. He had a great reputation defensively, um, you know, great arm, uh, instincts on the base pass, stolen bases, I mean, the whole bit. Um, so, you know, and, 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 and beyond that, um, you know, the Walker and Guerrero's numbers in some ways, like everything that Guerrero did, Walker was either right there or a little bit better. And, and so I probably would have voted if, if it was down to one. And for me, it was just because there's that, you know, you can only vote for 10. Um, you know, if, if you're down to one, um, a lazy tiebreaker. And again, I would have voted for Walker um, over Vlad anyway, but, you know, one more tiebreaker in Walker's favor is that I think this is his seventh year on the ballot and this is Vlad's first. So the vote for, for Walker is a little bit more urgent than Vlad. And, um, I hope Vlad gets in and, and if he doesn't, I hope I can vote for him in the future. I do think he's a hall of famer, but, uh, you know, in a lot of ways we're, we're limited by only being able to vote for 10 guys. Real quick, Trevor Hoffman did clear 1,000 innings. He got right up around 1,100. Uh, Billy Wagner, who's also on the ballot, did fall short of 1,000, though. Um, your entire ballot was Jeff Bagwell, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Mike Mussina, Edgar Martinez, Tim Raines, Manny Ramirez, Pudge Rodriguez, Kurt Schilling, and Larry Walker. That's a very sabermetric-friendly ballot. I think that's the 10 players with the best wins above replacement on the ballot. Did sabermetrics or advanced metrics play a part in your decision-making here? Absolutely. Sabermetrics, advanced metrics um, plays a part in um, a lot of how I analyze baseball. Um, but I don't think that I'm all the way on that side of it. You know what I mean? Like I, I very much value um, the scout side of it too. Like, there, you know, there's always been this kind of, um, it's died down a little bit, but that civil war inside baseball between scouts and, and stats. And um, I've always loved both. 
Um, and, and I've always thought that, that, that there's value in both, but, um, yeah, I mean, there's no question that, um, when you're looking at numbers, um, you know, I've, like, you know, just counting stats, um, don't mean as much to me as like, I, I really value OPS plus for instance. And I think that especially when you're comparing players across different times, you know, that, that can be a valuable tool. That was something that helped me with Larry Walker. Uh, for instance, like, you know, cause OPS plus, and I know where this, these are all kind of estimates and, 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 you know, ballpark factors are, are kind of hard to, to pin down a little bit. Um, but that should in theory mitigate a little bit of the, the course field factor and those numbers were still, were still terrific. So, um, yeah, it is a very sabermetric, the, 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 probably the most sabermetric part of that, um, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but probably the most sabermetric part of my ballot is leaving off Trevor Hoffman. You know, I, th- I think that most people who lean sabermetrics will probably leave Hoffman off, and most people who lean away from that will probably put Hoffman on. And and Hoffman's another guy like Vlad that I think probably is a Hall of Famer, um, and, and I hope that he gets in at some point. But I really think, in, in part because of baseball's, I think, stubborn and misguided refusal to put Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens in, you know, it's, just, it's a really loaded ballot. And, um, you know, if I had 12 votes, I think Vlad and, and Hoffman might might have gotten votes from me as well. But when you're limited to 10, you have to make some decisions. Bud Selig was voted in this year via the Veterans Committee. Did Bud going in influence your decision at all to put Bonds, Clemens, or even Manny in? It didn't, but only because I was going to vote for him anyway, um, whether Bud got in or not. But it, it, you know, if anything, I guess it solidifies it. Not that I... Um, and, and I, look, like I, I completely empathize with, you know, people who, uh, especially with Manny, uh, you know, tested positive twice. Right. Um, and I completely empathize with, you know, people who, who never want any of those guys in. Um, but to me, Barry Bonds was the best player of my lifetime. And, and I think Roger Clemens has an argument of being a top five starting pitcher of all time. And I, I just, I don't know how you can vote against those guys like that, especially when, you know, baseball, knew what was going on, let it happen. And, um, you know, we're not penalizing Tony La Russa. Um, and, and he certainly benefited, uh, from some of his players, uh, doing PEDs and, 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 you know, the Bud Selig thing, I know a lot of people have, have used that as kind of their pivot point. Um, and maybe I would have, if I was, you know, if I needed to pivot, but to me, I think those guys were already in. Bonds and Clemens are gaining votes now, and it looks like they'll both surpass 50% at least this year, which is a significant milestone for them to, to cross. I don't know yeah. if they'll actually ever get the writers full 75%. I don't think that's going to happen. I think they'll peak around 60, 65. I still think there's a large group of voters that simply will not vote in anyone with a direct connection to steroids. We have moved away from the suspicion keeping people out. I think Piazza going in last year, Bagwell likely this year, Pudge Rodriguez likely this year or next. We're seeing suspicion is not enough, but guys with direct links, I think are going to have a hard time ever getting in by the writers or the veterans committee. I totally agree with you. Um, I, actually, I, I don't know what'll happen I actually think that um, that those guys will get in eventually. Um, I don't know about Sosa, but Bonds and Clemens, I think, will get in. Um, but I, I agree with you that it probably won't be on the writers' ballot. And I don't know, if, you know, the Veterans Committee, I think, kind of tends to be hardliner. But I just, I feel like there's going to be a way, or you know, our our, um, our collective opinion or um, you know worldview of PEDs is going to evolve and change a little bit to where we kind of think. Uh, you know what, like, you know, Sosa is a different case. Let's put him off to the side. But 
Barry Bonds may be the best player of all time. And, and Roger Clemens won, you know, seven Zions, right? Like, this is ridiculous. What, what are we doing here? Um, I think those guys will get in eventually, but uh, I'm with you. That, that 70% or I'm sorry, 75% to get in. That's just, a, I mean, it's hard. If you just went into an Applebee's tonight and, and pulled whoever was in Applebee's, like, I don't know how many questions you could ask where you'd get 75% of the people uh, to agree with it. And I have no idea why I just picked Applebee's, but uh, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's just a big number. And, and, you know, there, there's, there's got to be, uh, you know, any little suspicion like that is, is an easy, you know, way for people to eliminate guys on the ballot. And it's also a completely arbitrary number. The reality is that all but one yeah. player who has eventually crossed 50% has gotten in, either by the writers themselves or by the Veterans Committee. So that bodes well for Lee Smith in the future and for Jack Morris next year when he's on the Veterans Committee. It bodes well for Kurt Schilling, who's going to see a drop this year. Um, Gil Hodges is the only guy who's crossed 50% that didn't get in. He had unusual circumstances. When he was on the ballot, he won a World Series as a manager and got a big spike. And then he died when he was still on the ballot and got another big spike. So those are two pretty unusual things to happen for a player who's on the ballot. Most players who cross 50%, all but Hodges, get in. So Bonds and Clemens crossing 50% will be a significant milestone. The 75% is completely arbitrary. And I think there will be a time in our lifetime, we're about the same age, that keeping uh, Bonds and Clemens out, rather, especially those two, will be universally mocked. It'll be, like, laughed at beyond belief that you kept two of the greatest players ever out of the Hall of Fame. But we might be 40 years from that. Yeah, and, and I think um, – I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Bud Selig thing too, though, uh, because I think that – and this isn't a comment on, on uh, my fellow members of BBWAA being slow to react to things, but um, I, I think that a year from now when that digests a little bit more – and I know like it's, it's a complete oversimplification to uh, you know, just call Bud Selig the stairway commissioner. I mean, I, I, I actually – I believe two things. I believe that there are far too many uh, commissioners and executives in the Hall of Fame. And, and, but I also believe that if we're going to put some of those guys in, I actually think that Bud Selig really deserves it. I, I think he did. Um, you know, I, I'm probably in the minority on that because I think you know, the, the public approval rating for him would not be very high. But I think he did a lot of really good things. Um, so I, I'm glad that he got in. But I think that when he's in, a year from now, when my fellow voters have another year to kind of digest the fact that the, uh, the commissioner who was, you know, the commissioner during this, you know, so-called steroid era is in the hall of fame. You know, what are we doing? Um, he benefited in part from Barry Bonds, greatness and Roger Clemens, greatness and, and all these things. Um, so what are we doing, uh, punishing the guys that, that actually did it? And I want to ask, get your thoughts real quick on the change that was made in the voting process that starting next year, the BBWAA will publicize all of the ballots, all of the not publicize, all of the ballots will be made public, which I think is a significant step forward. What are your thoughts on that decision? I have very conflicted thoughts about this. Um, actually, I, th- this is a move that I think has 99 percent approval rating among BBWAA probably. I mean, at least everybody that I've heard is, is unanimous in, in their approval of it. Um, I have no problem with my ballot, you know, like, I mean, obviously like I, I put it on Twitter and Facebook and, and spent a couple hours just, you know, basically doing nothing but answering questions about it the other day. Like I, it's important for me to be transparent and, and I think that people should. Um, I, I, and, and I'm not, this isn't a way of me saying I don't agree with it. That's I, I mean this literally, I'm just not sure what I think about, it being mandatory 
that it's public. And, and the, my, I guess my hesitation on that is, um, I don't, making it public can, um, uh, motivate groupthink. You know what I mean? I, I think that if a voter has a conviction about something and is motivated to vote against that conviction because of what the public reaction will be, um, I don't like that. And, and if your comeback to me is, well, then he should have the conviction to do it regardless of what, you know, the public reaction is, you know, it's a fair point and, um, and, and I understand that, but, you know, part to me, part of um, the beauty of the voting block is that there are a lot of different perspectives and, and these are people, and I'm really glad that they, they shaved the number of voters off uh, to kind of get rid of guys that are no longer covering baseball. I think that was important. Um, but I think, um, you know, making it mandatory that it's public, I just, I, I hope that guys, uh, well, women too, uh, although let's be honest, it's mostly men in the BBWA. I, I hope that voters... Um, don't change who they vote for because they know it's going to be public, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I wonder if we're actually already seeing some of that with Ryan Thibodeau's tracker. People can see the early results coming in before they vote. And I wonder if seeing those results changes their votes already. I think it might. I think some people yeah, may see uh, Vlad Guerrero getting close and say, oh, I, maybe I should vote for him. It'll clear up space for next year. Or they see the same thing with Trevor Hoffman. Or they see that Larry Walker is gaining a little bit, but was really stuck in ballot purgatory and say, you know what, maybe I should, I'd be better off voting for someone else. I think that the tracker is already influencing votes, which is kind of interesting. So I, I hadn't I, thought about that. That's a good point. And my other thought is that we see some weird ballots that are that are kept private. There's a big discrepancy between really some of the sabermetric guys uh, on their public and private ballots. Kurt Schilling gets crushed. Tim Raines gets crushed. Jeff Bagwell, Mike Mussina. These guys all get crushed on private ballots. And we also saw last year we saw three private ballots not vote for Ken Griffey Jr. And there's there's some shenanigans, and a lot of those shenanigans are kept private. One of the neat things that I do think that the ballots being made public will allow is I think that some voters who are uncomfortable with that will stop voting. I think there's an older school of voters who do not want their ballots made public. They don't want to be harassed on Twitter or anywhere else, and that's fine. And I think they will stop voting. It won't be a lot, but maybe you lose a dozen voters, and I think that's a good thing. But I think it, what, it, what it will also allow is the potential for someone to be voted in unanimously. Now that the ballots are made public, it's going to be a lot harder to justify not voting for Ken Griffey Jr. And I think the guy that may have a chance is in two years, it's Derek Jeter. I think Jeter has a chance now to be the first guy to get 100%. I, I don't disagree with any of that. Um, and, I, you know, Mariano Rivera could get close to. Um, but I, I do agree with you, especially about the, the point about, um, uh, you know, all, all ballots being public means the, the chances of unanimous, uh, unanimous induction go way, 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 way higher. And if they were all public when, when Griffey was on the ballot, uh, you're right. Either those three guys uh, wouldn't have voted or they probably would have voted for Griffey. But, um, you know, I, I just I don't know. Maybe I just need to get over this. Um, but I, I if people people are voting a certain way, the, the private ballots I'm talking about, um, they're voting a certain way for a reason. And um, I want to respect that. Like, I, I want to respect different viewpoints. And, uh, you know, if, if the ballots be if the ballots being public means that um, they defend those votes, then I think this is great. And, and I want to hear from those people. Um, but if the ballot, if the ballots going public mean that those people just, you know, crawl into a shell, um, and, or are just absolutely ridiculed 
on, on Twitter and other places, then I don't like it. You know what I mean? And, um, and, and again, I'm coming to this from a place of, I think it's important for me to be transparent and for me to, you know, have these discussions and, and talk about it and, and, you know, let people know that there's a lot of thought that goes behind these votes. But, um, I also, I, I don't want like the threat of public ridicule to influence votes. And, and I guess that's, that's where, uh, you know, that's the, the, the distinguishment that I'm making right now. You've been listening to Sam Mellinger. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Mellinger and find his columns at KansasCity.com. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thank you. And thank you for not uh, ridiculing me when I said distinguishment. Distinctions. <laughs>